You're listening to Honest Participants Only, a Dream Days Experience podcast. Welcome to another episode of Honest Participants Only, where today we have Amanda Meister in the studio. Sometimes writer, feminist in the suburbs, camerawoman in the film industry, and she had breast cancer. Hi, Amanda. How are you? Hi, I'm good, thank you. It's nice to have someone to talk to. <laughs> All right. Okay, let's start there. That is the truest statement <laughs> of 2021, even though we're nine days in. And also, it's because of, obviously, COVID, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm currently living with my 75-year-old mother because we thought, you know, stick together. So um, I think she's, in theory, more clinically vulnerable than I am, but the two of us are just, you know, being careful. So yeah. therefore, we have been at home for a long time. <laughs> how how long have you been at home? Well, I mean, I initially, at the beginning of lockdown, was sent a letter by my GP saying that I was at risk. Mm-hmm. And that kind of freaked me out. And I chatted to my oncologist and she said, well, actually, your mum's probably more at risk. So I have gone out and done like very like shopping. But I was, you know, all the hand sanitizer, masks, like going at six in the morning so no one else would be there. Yeah. And I managed to see some people over um, the summer very carefully when the numbers were lower. Um, but yes, no sort of meeting up with people, no seeing the God kids. Um, just me and mum really for what is it now a year yeah that's a long time to be isolated how has lockdown how has Covid impacted you um, emotionally mental health wise well interestingly I think Covid has impacted me a bit but I would definitely say my cancer experience is very similar so I've heard this from a lot of other people who've had cancer where they're like this is as if the whole world now is having to experience what it feels like to have chemotherapy and to have to stay at home and then you know dealing with post-viral fatigue um I you know I my immune system's not what it was before so I've quite often been out to see friends at a cafe and then come home with a really bad stomach bug that no one else has had right um and it does make you very sensitive and again all the anxiety around conspiracy theories one of the things you get when you're first diagnosed with cancer is you're just bombarded with people's weird ideas about give up sugar, have an alkaline diet, don't go too near telegraph poles. You know, it used to be cancer was the big C. And once you're diagnosed with it, it was impossible to get away from it. And funnily enough, some of the conspiracy theories going around about COVID are just the same as the cancer ones, but they've cut and paste the words cancer and COVID. So I feel like I've already been through what I can see a lot of other people are going through you know, sort of thinking, am I an idiot for having chemotherapy? Should I have just drunk kale? I know seeing all these sort of alternative therapies on YouTube and stuff. So in a way, I think maybe as a cancer patient, you're already quite well prepared for all of this. Yeah, that that's such a good point. And actually leads us nicely into how the heck we met. <laughs> well, I was going to say how many, scarily, how many years is it? Because I now have hair that goes down to my, well, where my breasts used to be. <laughs> and, uh, when I first met you, I had like no hair at all. So I'm guessing it was two years ago. So I was trying to find things to do because basically I couldn't go back to work because my work was very physical. 
and it's not an industry that accommodates anyone with any disabilities at all mm. um and you're dealing with fatigue and um you know I used to do a lot of heavy lifting and I'm not I can't do that anymore uh and also I think particularly whilst you're being treated you really want to give back you know it's so amazing the treatment that you get if you're lucky I know not everybody does um and I lived quite near um something called the Crick Institute which is I can't remember but I think it's three big cancer organizations came together pulled all their resources and built this huge building in Euston and they were looking for people to serve on a patient panel and I think panels like that often just get loads of people who've retired and they're desperate for somebody who's like under 75. Yeah. So I had the interview with the guys and they were like yeah that sounds brilliant um and then I think how many there were like 12 of us or something on the panel um, I think it started as 16 and quickly whittled down to 12. Yeah, and it was great. I really enjoyed it. And I found, in a funny way, tying in with the idea of conspiracy theories, I used to come away from it feeling much better. So although we'd spent like half a day talking about cancer, it was all in that very scientific, very evidence-based environment. And we met all these scientists who were helping create new treatments and I, it really bolstered me then when you went back into a world where there's all these conspiracy theories about, you know, big medicine and how no one cares or how there's a cure out there. And you're like, well, I've actually just met a doctor who's devoted their whole life to trying yes. to find a cure and has explained to me just how complicated it is. Um, and that would then give me sort of, you know, resolve to just ignore all the other crap <laughs> that people talk about it yeah um, and we were meant to put on an exhibition and the poor exhibition because it got more and more complicated initially nothing to do with covid they kept pushing it back and pushing it back and then just as we all met up for the last time i remember being like on a circle line tube trying not to get too near to anybody and sort of thinking oh i should be washing my hands uh, and we had this like little champagne kind of goodbye and i think we all kind of realized what was coming and yeah. being able to even put this cancer exhibition on yet and this is what's so weird about it, because even when we last met, which was probably early March, end of February, early March mm. um, 2020, we even had an email saying, if you do not want to attend, if you do not feel comfortable, you can stay away because we're not sure what the heck is going on in the mm. on the globe, on the planet. And I remember taking hand sanitizer with me, which yeah. I don't tend to walk yeah. around with. Um and we still sat next to each other in the room and we still, do you know what I mean? But we just were not aware of the whirlwind. I think it was the week after, literally the week after that they announced lockdown. Yeah, um, and we think they've looked back now, haven't they? And they, they think it was, you know, it got here in maybe November, December. Uh, and we were all merrily sort of going, ba ba ba, life is yeah. fun, la 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 la, Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, didn't have a clue. Well, funny enough, um, I was meant to go and see a friend in Shrewsbury, like an old uni friend, and I was really looking forward to it just before Christmas. And my mum went up to London to see a f her friend, and they went to see a film at the BFI. And just as, it was like her friend has like a cinema group. And just as she sat down, the woman next to her went, oh, I'm just recovering from norovirus. And my mum thought, oh, fuck, you know, and she within a day was so sick. And then I was really sick, because I, like I said, I just picked these things up now. Um, my immune system isn't brilliant. Um, but even then, it didn't occur to us to, like, wash hands, bleach the surfaces. Yeah. So, of course, my mum was very ill, and then I used the same bathroom. Um, um, but it, in a funny way, it was almost like a good omen, because we now 
took it, it was so clear you know it went from that woman who sat next to my mum from my mum it went to me and we we now know you know if you pick these things up they they will get to you and mm. and so we since have been like right stay at home don't go to the cinema wash your hands but yeah we didn't, so have a clue. we didn't have a clue and at that time did you think that you or your mum were particularly vulnerable to covid or just in general no just in general so you know you said that your mum came home and said that a woman had no was getting over norovirus and you both were alarmed and was that more because of you and your cancer yeah. experience? it was because of me and uh, you know this is a friend i only get to see every once in a while um yeah. cancel my trip and i think being a younger not so young now person in the family with cancer there is a lot of attention on you and your health you know she's my mum and the natural order of things is that my mum gets ill and weak whereas she's had to watch me get really ill and really weak and struggle in my recovery and not be able to have a family you know these these big things that happen to you yeah and sometimes it's lovely sometimes it's quite intense I have a sister as well and they're always like, are you okay? Are you okay? How are you? Are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> and you kind of put that on yourself. So no, she was worried about me. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, years down the line, as you've probably found, you're still dealing with the fatigue. Oh, and absolutely. I think possibly if I was just, if I hadn't got ill, I probably wouldn't have picked up that stomach bug off my mum. Yeah. But I, mm -hmm. stomach bugs particularly seem to just get through. I don't know if they're just nastier than colds. So... I've sort of managed to avoid colds for quite a long time because I haven't been able to go back to work and I've not yeah. really had to commute. You know, I've avoided rush hour and stuff, all those things. But tummy bugs, and that's what made me wary with COVID because I thought, yeah, you do catch stuff easily. And yeah. of course, no one, it's a bit like with chemo, you know, they, they give you chemo and you get that list of 100 side effects. And my one, I had to, you know, the last side effect was death. Mm -hmm. You have to sign off, go, there's a possibility of death. And you're like, yeah, all right, I'll sign that off, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> no choice. well yeah it's because they don't know do they till they fill your body with all this crap um sorry life-saving drugs that <laughs> uh, you know everyone reacts so differently and i really feel like that with covid i i you lose that confidence in your health i think like i watch young people out and about who've probably never really been seriously ill some of them will have done and you have that just a wonderful confidence that life is going to be fine and if i get this covid bug i'll be all right I'll be, you know, nine out of ten people, that's fine. And I think in your life when you've had that sort of sitting in a waiting room and someone telling you, actually, no, this is a disease that could kill you, it's almost stepping into, like, another realm. And I, I probably should be more confident about my health, but I, I, it's like I've gone past that now and I am that pessimistic person who thinks, oh, I'll probably be the one person that gets really sick because yeah. you, you've lost that um, wonderful reassurance of never having been ill before. Yeah. So obviously we're talking about your vulnerability and we're talking about your career, which we mentioned a couple of times. We're going to come straight mm -hmm. on to that in a moment. But would you mind sharing uh, the tiniest bit, whatever you're comfortable with, about your actual cancer? Um, yeah, no, I've, um, I'm pretty happy sharing because so far my journey's been fairly conventional, um, except for my age. So when I was 37, 2017 in January I've been worrying for ages about a lump but in my family no one has cancer everyone has heart attacks you know it's always like heart attack um and I don't smoke I worked outdoors you know I had a healthy lifestyle it just wasn't on my radar I used to see 
see all these, you know, pink breast cancer women and think, oh, those poor women. But that won't be me. It'll be something else. It won't be me. But it came to New Year and I was like, right, come on, I've got to get this checked out. And you suddenly find yourself sort of falling down a rabbit hole where most people keep getting told, do you know what? It's just fine. Don't worry about that. Go away. I kept being told, no, we need another test. We need another test. Um, and what happens is you get put on a list and then you have like a day where you go to hospital and by the end of it, you'll be diagnosed yes or no kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you sit there in the waiting room and you just suddenly realize that when everyone else is going, you're staying and it's a pretty grim process. But by the end of the day, they were like, we're sorry, you've got breast cancer. Um, but, and then, yeah, it's treatments, it's nurses. So I had to have surgery and then chemotherapy and then radiotherapy. I think when you're younger, everyone keeps going, oh, but you're young and healthy. Actually, it's not great because it means that your cancer is quite virulent. You know, mm-hmm. it's not an amazing thing. So they chuck everything at you. So I found treatment quite difficult. Um, and it is all part of a journey. And I can totally understand why doctors and nurses at the beginning don't tell you everything that's going to happen because bit like with COVID in a way, again, I see the parallels, you know, we had one little lockdown and we all had to tell ourselves we'll be fine in March. And then you get to March and you think, oh, actually, this is another six months. And if somebody tell told you back in March, it was going to be a year of lockdown, you just wouldn't be able to deal with it. So yeah. you, it kind of unfolds piecemeal. And by the end of your treatment, you know, most people are a cancer expert because you kind of have to be. Um, but I did have to have an operation and then you have to be quite careful with your arm. And so far, in theory, it hasn't spread. But breast cancer is quite nasty for coming back. So then you're on hormone treatment for maybe 10 years. So I always say to people, I'm not having active treatment because I'm still dealing with all the symptoms that come from, you know, taking tamoxifen, which is quite hardcore because I think people expect you to get back to normal life. And, you know, it's not it's not that straightforward. Um, and because my job and everything was very physical, I just had to give it up. There was just no way of going back. It's not an industry that accommodates people with vulnerabilities or disabilities. And so you're left kind of having to rebuild your life again, which is easier said than done, especially during a global pandemic. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And obviously, um, I'm sorry that you had cancer. Uh, I mean... It wasn't my favourite day, I have to say. No, yeah. <laughs> We, we, we wouldn't choose it. <laughs> no, but, I did get to have a strong gin and tonic and feel like, you know, I really don't care. <laughs> wonderful. One, I mean, there's always a silver lining, I guess. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, like, I did find, like, you know, I've met people like you and I've done the crick. It's it's kind of hard at sort of two years down the line because if you're lucky, and I was very lucky, I was treated at um, UCH, which is a wonderful hospital. It's big. It has long waiting times, but... It has this amazing cancer center. And I just felt like I was hugged from the moment I arrived. You know, they could see I was on my own. And when the nurse knew what my diagnosis was going to be, she like never left my side. I have had a few dodgy experiences, but I think that's, you know, understandable because it's a year of treatment. But I had just the nicest nurses and the Macmillan Center. Everyone was so caring. And you do feel like you're in this kind of womb while you're having the treatment. It is horrible. But you're, you know, you're being really looked after. If you get a temperature, you have to be rushed into A&E and you're like everyone's priority to get you your own little room, you know, all these things. And then suddenly it all ends and you're like, I miss the nurses. <laughs> you know, I want to yeah. go back to the hospital for all the hugs, please. Yeah, I absolutely hear that. Um, in contrast, though, 
you didn't get those kind of hugs from the industry that you were working in. So what were you doing in the movie industry? Um, well, I retrained in my early, I sort of did, did conventional education, was lucky enough to get, I'm old enough to get free university education, which feels amazing now. Um, and my dad passed away in my early 20s and it made me sort of reevaluate life then. And I just always wanted to do something visual um, my sister's very artistic. I'm not, but I have quite a good visual sensibility. And I really had grown up with telly and films. You know, that was my language. And I felt like, you know, you're 26, like, give it a go. Um, and I did an MA in TV and film production at Bristol University, which was a nice course, but no no help at all for <laughs> really, really brutal industry in a way. And so then you come out and you're like, how on earth do I navigate this industry? And being a woman... I do think back then, I guess it would have been 2000, and, I mean, all pre-Me Too, maybe 2006, seven, 2007, you know, and you're working for free. Anyway, so I did in the end climb the ladder and I got to be um, a camera assistant and I got on big films and I did TV drama. Um, but it is a freelance career and you have to just show no weakness at all. You know, if you're doing like a TV commercial, you're getting really well paid. And if they want you there for 24 hours um, in the freezing cold or snow running around, um, then you just do it. They just throw more money at you. There's never any question of we should have shorter days. Um, we should accommodate, I mean, anything really, you know, women who want to have children just have to leave. And if they're lucky enough, they can come back. But it's it's tough. It's tough. And I just, I mean, I also turned away from it because I thought I can't. I can't go back. I don't have the confidence in myself physically now. And, you know, I used to be very strong. And as a woman, you were just constantly having to prove yourself. It's like, can you lift that heavy thing? And you're like, well, no one should be lifting that. That's too heavy. You know, that'll give a man or a woman a hernia. But there was kind of that push as a woman to be like, yeah, I can. I can do this. And if yeah. you want me to stay another five hours, I can do it. Um, and, of course, there's no structure to, to support you. If you feel terrible the next day, you can't take a day off work. If you don't work, you don't get paid. And a lot is about who you work with and your reputation. And if you upset people or they get upset by you, you just don't work with them again. So hence, you know, you get people like Harvey Weinstein because there's no kind of HR department in the film industry. So I, I loved it and I love films and I love TV. I didn't, I wasn't overly enamored with the system as it existed when I joined the industry. But I do, you know, I miss it. I miss traveling. I miss, I love being outside. You know, I'm an outside person. I hate being in an office. And I, at the time, I loved sort of pushing myself and feeling strong and confident. And the horrible thing that the cancer treatment, not so much the cancer, but the treatment does, if I push myself now, I pass out. Right. And then I need to go to bed for a week. <laughs> so as you can imagine, that's quite, you know, that's quite unnerving. I mean, you've probably experienced it yourself. You know, you're meant to be somewhere and you're trying to push yourself into that extra gear and it's just not there. Yeah, a hundred percent. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, and it makes me think about the way in which we are perceived by others. Now I've had lifelong, um, 
what, what would I call them? Pre-existing conditions. That's what I'll call them. Things that I haven't always wanted to speak about. So a lot of gynae problems and other yeah. things that people always have an opinion on, right? So, I mean, God forbid you have a period on a film set. <laughs> I know. Well, I was coming to that, I promise. Um, because, I, you know, so I've always had this issue of uh, there's always been something more complex that has been wrong with me and it's been impacting yeah. my life in a certain way. And in a way... The cancer diagnosis um, and the surgeries and everything made it easier for me to explain away, mm. I am unable to do this right now because I'm so ill. People still gave me the, you, you, you must be better by now, or, oh, but you didn't lose your hair, or I still got all of the judgments and the assumptions and all of that stuff, but because the word cancer comes with its own kind of, you know, sledgehammer, for the yeah. most part people go oh okay well it's cancer so I kind of get it but with other stuff because all most women have periods people go oh it's just a period even though they didn't know what quite what was going on with me and in fact for many of the years of my life I didn't know what was going on with me and so I developed this kind of um insecurity about saying I couldn't and I became a person who would even if they couldn't, even if I didn't have capacity. So I'd live the thing, even if actually I knew I shouldn't and I knew it would knock me out for a week, like you say, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it was very debilitating. Uh, and so I know that going onto a film set like you're describing would have been very difficult for me because there are absolutely times where a cyst might burst in my stomach and I'll have blood running down my legs. And I'm a creative and I'm very passionate about doing those kind of things. I would have loved to work on a film set um, yeah. or, or whatever. No, but I read that. Able to. There's a sort of famous quote by Nora Ephron and she always says, there's no reason to, for it, films to be how they are. She said, on my film set, there's a crash. We start work at nine. Yeah, we finish work maybe at six or seven, a little bit later, but we all sit down and have a lunch and we all go home. And it's a very, I mean, I'm going to sound so, so <laughs> happy then, but because men have sort of pushed their way into the industry, it's all about, you know, proving that you can do it. It's proving that you can do the long hours. And nobody ever stops to say, well, should we be doing this? And so, of course, again, as a woman, I mean, I definitely, I don't, it's difficult. I was chatting to some friends about it and I'm 41 now and we were talking about how in the 90s there was this general idea that things were getting better. But when we were at school there was, a, I, I don't know, you know, like racism is going to go and sexism is going to go and homophobia is going to go and it's all going the right way. So you just have to suck up the crap that you encounter. So because it's, you know, you, you have to be tough. So if somebody touches you, yeah. up, you sort of go, well, they're a dickhead and things are getting better. So I'm not going to say anything. So I'm very much from a generation of women, I think, who are now sort of looking, going, why didn't we say anything? <laughs> and that's just saying, you know, we feel a bit guilty. But at the time, it was really like, no, no, you just have to, you have to be as professional as you can be. You have to prove that you can do, do the job. And then I guess naively, we were told, then you will advance and things will get better. And I think, I guess we got to sort of the early, mid-2000s and people sort of realised it's not getting better. And young women were like, we don't. We don't want to be touched up at work. Yeah. And, you know, and, it's, okay, and it's okay that I don't want to be. <laughs> yeah, and women are shouting a bit louder and, and sort of saying, oh, well, why can't I work in this industry? And I also saw another really sad thing about a young girl who was desperate to get into, like, the production side of things, which is a bit easier because it's not easier, sorry. It's in an office more. 
but it's still bullying and long hours and competition. And she was in, I think, a wheelchair with maybe another disability. And she said, oh, my whole life I've been told that I can't do this. And then suddenly COVID comes along and everybody's working from home. And she said, it's become really obvious that they could have done this. Yeah. You know, when the, the rich, strong people are affected, suddenly, oh, these changes happen and you can edit from home and you can work part time because you get exhaustion. And, and she said, you know, but I've been told my whole life that I can't work in this industry. Uh, you know, so it's it, yeah, it was difficult. And if I ever got like a period on set, I remember once being up this thing called a ladder pod, which is kind of a cheap way of getting the camera up high. It's, it's safe, but the grip like gets three big ladders, specially rigged up, and they lock together. And then you lock the camera at the top. Right. Um, but it's quite scary. You have to kind of walk up with this big heavy camera and put it in place. And then you're up, I don't know, 20 feet in the air on a ladder. <laughs> and I just was stood there thinking, oh, I've just started my fucking period. <laughs> oh, no. And you're there till, you know, the take is done or that setup is done. And, you, and our camera truck was miles away because I think we were filming over a road, so like over a motorway looking down so the camera truck couldn't get nearby and then I managed to find like a trainee who could do my job and I was like I've got to you know I've got to run and then I get to the camera truck and I'm like well the toilets are another five minute journey away and uh so I just had to hope nobody came and you know sorted myself out <laughs> went back on set and of course I didn't say anything to anyone you didn't say oh I've just had my period and I also remember doing a shoot out in the desert in southern Spain and uh, again they hadn't it was the BBC bless them who are problematic um yeah. hadn't put enough money in so there were no toilets and of course the men were just like going behind bushes and things like that and we were lucky enough that the cat the like the cinematographer the main camera woman was was a woman and she was powerful because she was at the top and she just said i'm sorry we are i need a wee i've been needing a wee for an hour i'm not filming anymore until you get a jeep and all the women on this set can get on it and we can go, you know, and we can go and have a blooming wee. <laughs> and suddenly all the women were like, oh my God, thank God I'd be desperate for a wee. And they got all these cars. And it hadn't occurred to anybody to just, even those simple things, you know, women needing a wee. Mm -hmm. So when you say things like, I have fatigue or I might need tomorrow off or I don't know how I'm going to feel next week, you know, that is just, it's never going to happen. But isn't it ludicrous that you guys didn't even feel empowered enough at the time to be able to say, I need a wee. It's you know what I mean? We weren't. I mean, uh, the last job I did uh, was with a um, DAP I'd been working with. I'd worked so hard for him on three quite difficult jobs. And this was a really long job. It was like a year long. It was Victorian. We were constantly in the mud. It wasn't funded well enough. We didn't have enough gear. So I was really exhausted by the end of that job. You know, I had um, like I had my legs strapped up, my arms strapped up. I fell down a flight of stairs because I was so tired. And everyone was like this, you know, some jobs at the end, it's just hard. And apparently he heard me slagging him off, which I genuinely was very careful not to do. But I was probably just, you get a bit mad because you're not getting enough sleep and you're physically yeah. great. And suddenly he said, I will never work with her again. And I, I remember that I'd gone to the producers saying, this is dangerous, we need more help. And we did get more sort of trainees in because they weren't very expensive. You just need more hands, you know. And I we were filming in the Forest of Dean and we were all tied up and rigged up by like mountain climbers who come in to make us safe and uh, I slipped and I was falling down a huge hole and I remember one of my friends going please don't die Amanda and I was like I'm gonna try not because <laughs> what they tied us up with the ropes weren't tight enough and I just fell down this huge crevice I was fine luckily but you know the problem was it's very hierarchical and if your boss doesn't stand up for you 
nobody else will. And I think I did at some point just think, I've got to say something. So I don't know, you know, and, and basically because I'd done like two years work with him, when he said, oh, I'm not going to work with you anymore, I didn't have any more work. Right. He was my boss and I got work, you know, he would get hired and he would hire his, hire his crew. And I'd done all these really long jobs with him. So I'd lost all my other contacts. And then it's just down to luck. You know, you stop working with them and you have to try and get in with another crew and you have to hope there's a gap because, you know, all these crews are all working together. Um, so the BBC don't hire you. The cinematographer hires his camera assistant. That camera assistant hires you. You know, you bring your loyalty. And if you say anything, you don't you don't work again. That is the option. And I think on that job, I was so sick of it. And I could see that the people below me needed protecting that I did actually say something. And the consequence of that was I never worked with that person again. Do you think that as a result, even though you there was a negative impact for you personally, do you think that as a result, anything changed going forward? So do you think the people no, no, that of, they didn't become a little bit more empowered? They just, in fact, they probably it probably worked. They probably became more scared. I, no, I mean, he had a bad reputation and he was a bit of a snob. So I think he quite liked me because I've got this, you know, Southern English accent. I've got a university degree and a lot of camera boys are really like, oh, blokes. Okay. And you can have crews that are full of those lads. And there are men that don't like that as well. So there's quite a bit of, I don't think they'd realise it, but there's like a lot of crews with this just one woman. And we're expected to tone everything down so that right. everyone can't just, you know, get their dick out and make jokes and have porn mags on the camera truck. They're like, oh, there's a woman. Or, you know, most, but most of the time I didn't actually mind. You know, I don't mind all that sort of banter. Um, you know, essentially I'd rather have just had some power in my job. I don't mind them banter. and really makes me laugh. You know, I like the football. I like silly dad jokes. I used to get on really well with people on set. Um, but you just didn't want to die. Well, yeah, you just want a bit of power. And I've been on a lot of jobs and I've seen a lot of very bad accidents. And I've seen somebody nearly killed and had to go to court and give witness statements. And it was always from tiredness, mistakes, and still nothing's changed. Yeah. I mean, I was having a row with a friend of mine who is a man who still is in the industry. And he's like, oh, you've been out of it for three years now. It's changed. It's changed. And I was like, I'm sorry. I know as a woman, society hasn't changed that much, really. And he went up and actually looked up statistics and went, oh, yeah, no, you're right. So 3% camera women and there's only, you know. And he was like, oh, but I hire women. I was like, oh, whoop de doo Thank you, big man, for hiring the woman. But how many women bosses are there? Yeah. And there are hardly any. It's hardly any. Yeah. yeah. So tell me, you, were you, you said that you, did, you took a career change. What were you doing before that? Were you always a creative and would you call yourself a creative? No, well, I was doing charity work. So I'd kind of, I grew up in a very political household, very left wing, um, you know, always talking about politics, always doing quizzes. My dad didn't get to go to university. So me and my sister are like our first generation of our family. There was a lot of emphasis on being intellectual, you know, being clever. We didn't, I mean, I didn't go to private school or anything like that. I just went to my local comp. So you go to university and you're like, oh, I'm not really that clever. Um, everyone else has had like private tutors since day one whatever um so no I was doing like French and history my dad was very like pro Europe um he was quite ashamed of sort of England and little Englandness and and trying to sort of embrace the world and he was like oh my daughter speaks French she was so proud um and I I'd hoped to kind of work abroad you know the whole white savior thing and work for a charity and <laughs> back then in the sort of Tony Blair era 
Um, it was becoming kind of more popular to do charity than politics. It felt like if you worked for Save the Children, you could do more than if you worked for a political party. Right. And I was kind of heading that way. But sadly, um, when I just left uni, my dad dropped dead of a heart attack like that. And, you know, my world just exploded. And I did not want to go to war zones anymore. <laughs> I just was, you know, I was 23. I wanted to be at home with my mum. And so I ended up doing fundraising for charities because that was kind of office based and easier to get into. Um, but again, I quite, you know, I didn't have the best experience with the charity sector either, sadly. Um, and I thought, you know, I inherited a little bit of money when my dad died, enough to pay for a course. And was like, oh, you should just do it. Um, and I was probably three years after he died. So I, you know, got over it all and was feeling a bit more robust. And um, I was still in my 20s. So I still had that kind of confidence and optimism to go and do stuff. Yeah. Um, because yeah, I was also a bit disillusioned with the um, charity sector. I sound terribly bitter. <laughs> <laughs> no, I worked in charities for a while. I think yeah. I know what you mean. So I I'm think... sorry to hear about your dad. I'm I'm genuinely sorry. That sounds uh, devastating as you describe it. Well, um, it was it was a shock. Like my dad ran marathons. He did everything, but he just had a congenital heart condition. And being a bloke, he just never got it checked out. Right. So, you know, that's kind of, to me, that's sort of toxic masculinity that people talk about now. You know, I'm a man, I will be fine. If I run enough yep. marathons, it will be fine. And it wasn't, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, that kind of fundamentally has shaped my life, I think, and the choices I made. And then I guess getting my cancer diagnosis at 37 was like the next kind of, you know, smack on the head. And yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of people talk about, oh, when you got told you had cancer, did you suddenly think, oh, I need to change my life and I'm like well I already did that yeah another reason why I've struggled afterwards because like I said the film industry you know was not great um it had a lot of problems but I had taken that risk I'd fought for something I really cared about and that is you know and I I got a lot of confidence from battling the industry from being like wow you know you managed to do that thing you stood up to that thing and I love traveling around I love being able to go into national trust properties I was never in an office um and I, you know, I tried for my dream. It wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be, but I'd already got that out of my system. And so suddenly at 39, when you're regularly having like palpitations and you're fainting uh, and everyone's like, oh, surely now you just want to become a yoga teacher or run a farm. And I'm like, not really. <laughs> I just want to sit in bed and watch reruns of Friends so that I feel better. I mean, this is a great segue into the next the next kind of phase of this interview. So I was going to ask you, but you literally just answered. <laughs> Sorry. I was going to ask you what your dream is. So kind of what motivates you to get out of bed in the morning. But I'm assuming that would be a cup of tea so you can go back to bed and watch reruns. <laughs> yeah, I think, well, no, it's sad. I mean, I do, I really, really miss that. And I think I really struggle now with my confidence. And I have a lot of like um, panic attacks when I'm out exercising so I love long walks to recover from my dad dying um mum and I we did the coast to coast walk we did the Pennine Way um again these are things that like that's one of the best things that will ever happen to me in my life I just love that I was out on the moors and I had this real confidence that you know I'm I'm level-headed when the wind came I had the right clothes I was I could take a deep breath I knew that I could get to the end of this 16 mile walk and it was the same at work, you know, you'd, you'd be on a moor on the Isle of Man in the peeing rain. And I just used to have the confidence to say, keep your head down. You know, this too will pass. It's fine. It's just, just rain. 
And now I find my anxiety goes through the roof. I feel like I'm going to pass out, I'm going to have a heart. You know, my dream would be not to be anxious about my heart, you know, and have this kind of hypochondria. Yeah. Uh, but that's easier said than done. And I, I guess, well, you know, if you walk into a doctor's office and say, I've got a lump, and they turn around and say, you've got a really aggressive cancer, you're you know, what was a small amount of hypochondria. Like, I used to reassure myself. One of the ways I would reassure myself um, would be like, do you know what? You're probably fine. You're probably fine. So, yep, you're feeling a little bit anxious, but that's because you're on a stuffed tube train or um, you've just seen a crash on the motorway. You know, and I'd talk myself down and be like, oh, you know, this." there were days shooting where I'd feel a bit faint. Um, and I'd be like, you're okay. You just need a chocolate bar. You're fine. Now I'm like, you're dying. You've got <laughs> you're having a heart and I can't put like the um lid back on the jar because I've been through that experience where someone has said to me it's not okay you know you've had to sign the thing that says this treatment might kill you I've been in A&E you know I've I've my second round of chemo um it triggered a sort of minor heart attack and I had to be rushed you know and see all your friends and family like disappear and the emergency people come in and it's almost as if it's taken the lid off and I have no way of putting that nervousness back in the box so how, myself you'll be fine so how do you manage that then now because it's very real um again it's something i identify with and when you're speaking mm. i'm like mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> so how do you manage it well i don't i don't i do and i don't i think the problem was when my cancer first came along um i didn't have children i had um a small income that i could get that kept me going and in a way I kind of cleared the decks I was like this year it's just going to be my cancer year my job is going to be I have like a you probably have this like a3 folders of hospital notes yeah stuffed I'm like where do I put these blooming hospital notes and in a way because the cancer journey hasn't ever, doesn't ever really stop I don't feel like I can ever throw them away some I have and I just I got myself like I was the perfect patient I did everything I could but it meant when I came out the other side my life was just a blank and I had no pressures on me, which is great. But I think people like in my support groups who've got kids just had to get up in the morning and get on with it. They had to go back to work. They had a mortgage to pay and um, bills and they had to go, you know, they were forced into it. And it's very hard. It's like a wonderful privilege to be in a situation. I mean, it's not, I would have loved to have had kids, not to have kids, not to have the mortgage payment, but it, it's, then there's nothing sort of pushing you. So I am like, I'll do a little jog and then I'll climb a big hill. And then nine out of 10 times are absolutely fine. But on the 10th time, I sort of think, oh gosh, I'm having palpitations. And I'm right back to the beginning where, you know, the anxiety is sky high. So I've been to see a counselor. I'm looking into now maybe doing some other kind of therapies, but I, I'm, I have good days and bad days. And I think partly it's letting yourself off the hook. But on the one hand, it's a luxury that I haven't yet had to get like a difficult job. But it does also mean that I don't have to confront that. So, you know, it's the positive and negatives, really. And I'm definitely not there yet. But I'm also acknowledging there's no such thing as there. Yeah. It's so interesting hearing you speak because to me, um, it's very, I, I think I want to use a different word, but I can't think of one. So I'm going to use inspirational. Um, it's, you know, it's the kind of thing people can note down in their how to cope survival notebook and kind of go, okay. Because to me, when you were talking about, you know, doing the hill and then on the 10th time, maybe having palpitations and and having it, you know, trigger your anxiety more. Mm -hmm. What I heard was 
I still keep going out to do these hills. And so that was that's what for me was inspirational. The fact that actually, despite those moments, you still keep going back. You keep going back to do the things that keep you keep you alive, that yeah. like your mental health in a in a better place than if you just avoided doing them altogether. No, well, I mean, I have like I uh, everyone laughs at me for my book group pub quiz over Christmas. I did the Sex and the City round because just before I got diagnosed, a friend of mine was clearing out all her old DVDs, and I got this box of like the whole, not the films. Yeah, I mean, Sex and the City is very problematic, but it's kind of brain dead. And as I was waiting to find out about lumps, waiting to be told if it's spread and you've got a year left to live, I mean, what do you do in those times? You just mm -hmm. go mad. And I would watch episodes of Sex and the City. Again, I've probably watched it hundreds of times, but I'm very aware that every time you watch it, the effect is less. So similarly, I've watched loads of Friends, again, a very problematic TV show, but they're made <laughs> bland, right? So, but I, you know, the hundredth time you watch the episode, it doesn't relax you as much as the first time. And the problem is if you never confront these things, your life becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And you stay at home because you're frightened. But then over time you become frightened at home as well. And your sanctuary becomes so incredibly small that it's quite obviously a prison, not a sanctuary, you know, not a sanctuary. And so you do at some point, no matter how petrified you are, have to kind of push those walls back out again. And I was, you know, I would be too anxious to get on a train. I'd be too anxious to do all these things. Um, and this is where I think COVID has been a bit difficult because, again, when you're struggling with things like anxiety and hypochondria, a global pandemic <laughs> and the news surrounding it is not helpful at all. Yeah. And I was getting to the point where I was like, brilliant, I can get on trains. I feel quite confident um, when the world shut down again. And funnily enough, I thought, well, I hope 2020 might be the year where I finally was like, right, I'm going to do some more things. I'm going to push myself a bit further get more of a job that means something to me, maybe do some more volunteering, do some different sports. Um, and and I, I felt like I was finally getting a bit of proper strength back. Um, and that obviously has just not happened <laughs> at all. So I think, um, you know, what is the new normal? And when we are allowed back out again, it will, you know, I will be rebuilding from uh, a place of more anxiety than I was at the beginning of the year. But yeah. you've got the whole world that's going on the same journey as you now. Yeah. Okay, so before we move on to the next phase, I just want to ask you about your support system. You mentioned your mum and your sister. Um, I also want to know about your friends. How how do they perceive you? Do they think you're this Wonder Woman who they all look up to? You know, what what is it that, if anything, has changed? I think one thing in my life that I've always nurtured is friendships and um, like not having had family. I was, I'm very lucky. I've always had a really good group, a very strong, totally non-judgmental, supportive friends. You know, that's not always been like that. But I find it interesting when people talk about their female friendship groups and they're like, oh, well, we're all competitive with each other. We all undermine each other a bit. And, we're, and I'm like, I do not have friends like that. I have very, very lovely friends. And... Definitely with the cancer diagnosis. Um, it's weird because at the beginning it's just awful, but you do also, a bit like grief, you you feel the love. Like you, you would only grieve somebody if you loved them in the first place. Yeah. And seeing all those people sad for you is hard, but it, it you know, you tell each other that you love each other. And there was a point, you know, where you have your operation and then two weeks later you have to go back to be told, is your cancer terminal or not at this point? And like everyone's trying to support you and they're going, what do you need? And I'm like, I don't know what I need. 
But I had just all these amazing messages from my friends and I had so much support. It felt like, you know, just a wonderful white light and it was it was amazing. And my friends have stood by me and they set up their own groups to talk about me and to look after me and make sure people were checking up on me. And I think other people have also talked about how that falls away a bit. And and my friends have just been great. They they've always supported me, they've always looked out for me. Um I guess some of them think I'm strong. I find it hard to get past what I think of myself, you know. Sometimes my friends will be like, God, you're the strongest person I know. And I think, no, I'm not. <laughs> I don't know who you're talking about. Um, but they have been really amazing. And I think what I found a bit heartbreaking about COVID. So last year was my 40th birthday. And I was back at my mum's. And we managed to just have this really big garden party. And I invited all my friends. And I invited all my friends' kids because I felt very sad for my mum. You know, she's not had a wedding. She's not had babies from me. She's just had cancer. And I really wanted to show her that I, I actually live in this lovely world full of children. My God kids, my friends' kids who I adore, who have had the time previous to help raise them. You know, I was freelance, I might have a month off, I would go round. My friends had just given birth. You know, I, I, I gave a lot to my friends because I love them. Um, and I just wanted her to see all this love. And I think what I found really heartbreaking about COVID is, is just that not having that friendship network at all anymore. And they're still there. And we see each other on Zoom as much as we can, but it's just not the same. It's not the same. And it scares me, I think, now that it's been a whole year. Um, and luckily, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good at being introspective and reading books and going for walks and having podcasts. Um, but I do worry that if your friends aren't around to kind of pull you out of that introspection, that's not necessarily a good thing. But but they can't. So all those things we used to do for each other, you know, a lot of my friends, you know, they've really been struggling. Like a friend of mine has got two young kids and her husband had a kidney transplant. Sorry, liver transplant. Um, and his health isn't great. But, you know, who knew that this pandemic would come and put him at the very top of the list? So they're a young family desperately struggling. And normally, if it wasn't COVID, I'd be in there. I'd be like, right, I'll take your kids. I'll take them to the park. I'll take them to a restaurant. I'll buy them stuff, you know, if you need a night off to sleep. And all those things that we do to connect to each other have just gone. And I worry that in a year, you know, we've all got used to kind of being on our own. And I'm hopefully at some point we'll all be allowed back to see each other. But I definitely miss that, like, concrete network that I feel like I'd spent my life building up. And in a year, it's, it's just kind of disappeared. That's really um, interesting, insightful, uh, and yeah, thought provoking. Yeah, I mean, I'm very lucky. I I adore all my friends. We I've got a sort of we, we we call them book group, and I've got a few others that my book group. But they're just really lovely, good, strong, caring people, and we really miss each other. Yeah. Well, the thing the thing that struck stuck out for me was you were speaking about the fact that your friend started a group to talk about you, to support you without you in it. And I, that's so unique and so beautiful. People kept turning up at my door and I was like, how, why are you, how are you doing, what? <laughs> and uh, they were just kind of getting on it, you know. Well, I think um, if you care, it, what I really hated about cancer treatment is it's, there's nothing you can do. I think this is, again, why people have trouble with that whole warrior war um vocabulary because you've never been so vulnerable and so weak in your entire life because they inject you with this stuff and they only know how it's going to affect you when it's affecting you yeah so they give you this you sit at home there's nothing anyone can do and you just see how your body gets on with it and there are bits and bobs that people can do and I'm so used to sort of living on my own I work freelance 
Um, I want to help people. I want to look after my mum. And I just had to give into it. There's nothing I can do to help people. I just had to go through this treatment. And you are, I've ne it felt uniquely vulnerable and weak. And just wait and see, you're just waiting and seeing. And so I think your friends feel the same. There's like, if you'd broken your leg, they could take you out. If you, um, I don't know, if you'd had a miscarriage, they can give you emotional support. But with cancer, not that it's any worse or any better, it's just there is nothing anyone can do. And I, funnily enough, my mum kept buying things for me and I was stuck in a room. You know, I didn't like, when I had one of the chemos that makes you particularly nauseous, I wouldn't even eat for a week. I would just lie in bed with a big bottle of squash. And I was like, why, mom, I don't need these sunglasses. You know, I don't need this nice scarf. I don't need this thing. And then I realized, of course, she's a mom looking at her daughter dying. And she just wants to be able to do something. And my mom would go to the shops and buy a few nice bits and give them to me. So I realized that I also had to let her do that. Yeah. Because that was all she could do. And same with my friends, you know, when I was feeling a bit better, they'd sort of come around and bring me a bunch of flowers or just sit in my garden with me. And they were desperate to help, but there's nothing anyone can do. It's kind of a look, you know, just wait and see and then wait and see. And you go through appointments and everyone's waiting and seeing. And it puts it's so hard for people because most people want to help and be kind and they just can't. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, we're going to move on to another part of the podcast and it's called Slightly Off the Beaten Track. It's where I get your opinion on just something random that I've thought of whilst we've been talking. Okay. Um, and what I thought of for you is I wanted to know what you think the social impact of COVID is going to be in five years. Oh, the social impact of COVID in five years. That is quite interesting. I, 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 I'm sort of naturally a bit pessimistic about it. I think there's this idea of build back better. But I think it's gone on so long now that people are so fed up of it that they're now sort of talking more about that. Like, will there be a roaring 20s? And what I would love to think is maybe five years gives people enough time to rebuild back better. Um, but I, I find, you know, there's so many voices that have been ignored for so long. And I just don't know how you reform society. You know, will it make us more caring because we've actually understood what it's like to be disabled in a society? Or will we all be so scared of it that we'll become more kind of phobic around disabilities and things like that? Do you know what I mean? Like, as if it's been yeah. on so long now, we're so desperate to run away from it. And I mean, I am a political person and I'm very anti the government at the moment at the best of times. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, you know, I do look here and I look at America and, and, you know, it is true that you sort of have to reach the bottom before you rebuild better. And I don't know whether we're there yet. Um, people are so wedded to the idea of profit and money, you know, see what we're doing to the environment. You know, you can stand in Australia with a bushfire burning your house down and people will still say they don't think there's climate change. And you do think, what like, what will it actually take? And I think at the beginning, you know, as Western societies, we could see that our societies were quite flawed in, you know, we want our individualism. And the price we are willing to pay is 100,000 people dying in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's changed. I mean, I, I don't know. It's difficult. I think being stuck at home, I have spent far too much time online and that is quite a negative voice. I'm not hearing loudly the optimistic voices. And I think, you know, the fact that most Western countries have sort of failed at this is an indicator, you know, that we've lost community. It's really about the individual. And we would all rather that we were individually okay than that we were 
okay together. And I think my experience as a cancer patient was interesting because a lot of the pills you take have like, like the pills I'm on now have, I think, a 30% efficacy. And you're having to make these decisions about your treatments. And actually the evidence is public health evidence. So I was already thinking about public health. You know, I remember my oncologist saying to me, you know, this drug, okay, maybe it only saves a third of women with breast cancer. But if you bear in mind that a million women say, get breast cancer, for us, that's 300,000 women. So for you, it's just you and you're thinking, oh, do I want these consequences? But I think we don't have a sense of public health anymore. And we're all at the point where we're blaming each other when actually, to me, it's an indication of just a wider social problem. You know, why can't, why aren't we happy to submit to some things in order to help other people? You know, society to me is about protecting the weakest person. You know, like my family all supporting me when I was the ill person in the family. You know, I'm not going to be the main breadwinner anymore, bread earner anymore. So they will support me. You know, that's how the social contract works. And I feel a little bit pessimistic about that. But I have, on the other hand, heard some amazing people talking about how the world could be a better place, you know, working from home. So if you're in a wheelchair and you can't get to an office, nobody used to give you that job. Maybe now they will give you that job because it's proved that, you know, you can have a career on Zoom. But I I, I don't quite think we've reached the bottom yet. So I don't know. I hope to be optimistic, but I'm feeling a bit pessimistic about it. You know what? I think that's the most accurate answer that um, I could envisage being given because five years is a long time and so much has even changed even in the last nine months so yeah no thank you so much for your answer well it's a good um, point. i've spent my time listening to the michelle obama on uh yes. you know my thing and i'm like you're the most amazing woman i've ever heard <laughs> and at the end of the book she's sort of talking a bit about trump and you think blimey so in order to have eight years of obama we have to have trump so and you know you just think what why why <laughs> why do people want that and so like black lives matter and um i mean sadly i still think disability rights is very quiet and that's something i feel very passionate about um because it was interesting to me post-cancer i've had a lot of time to listen to a lot of podcasts and i would sort of move towards a lot of disability podcasts because the cancer ones are sometimes a bit too on the nose but disability podcasts were people who just were outside the mainstream telling you what their lives were like yes suddenly you know i was in my mid-30s and i was told you can't have children you can't have your career so everything i'd watch on the telly just felt really pointless it was like a world i was no longer part of you know midlife crises and uh, growing old and all those things are sort of taken away from you um and i would i felt very at home listening to things about people with disabilities and how the world just doesn't work for them and I still think that's a very quiet voice in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, when will the backlash against that begin? I mean, those, there was some disability rights movement in the 90s. But since then, you know, I, you know, with sort of you think how people make themselves look perfect on the Internet. Like, what are you meant to do if you're disabled or if you have visual or physical differences? It's, yeah, it's it's a difficult one. And um, yeah, but yeah, you know, you listen to Michelle Obama and that makes you incredibly hopeful on the other, and then on the other hand, you've got Trump. So who knows which way it's going really. A hundred percent. Thank you so, so much. Um, okay, next section is called Quick Fire Round. And I'm gonna put some questions up on the screen. I'll also read them to you. And you just need to answer very quickly within 10 seconds, which it, 
isn't actually very quick. <laughs> uh, I, say that I also think that my chemo has impaired my cognitive function. So that is my like get out of clause. <laughs> okay. And I do you know so what? Right. It's fine. It's fine because there are no fines for getting it wrong. <laughs> so here goes the quick fire round. What was the last movie you watched? Ooh. Ooh, that, see, this is done. My memory is terrible. I have watched tons and tons of TV. Um, I'm trying to think of the actual film. Oh, um, me and my mum, uh, as a Christmas treat, rewatched the um, David Copperfield that came out in the cinemas about this time last year. Okay, yeah. Was it any good? Because I've been meaning to watch it. Yeah, it's really lovely. It's really lovely. Nice. We were trying to think, it's funny trying to find things that suit a mother and a daughter. Like, we're neither of us prudish, but I don't want to watch sex scenes with my mum. Yeah. <laughs> A hundred percent, and and rightly so. I think yeah. if you were too eager to do it, I'd be like, okay, you guys are too close. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it's fine with swearing and all of that, but it is still embarrassing watching the. Yeah. So there's quite a lot of modern TV Netflix series where I sort of go, "Is there a lot of shagging in that?" And my friends are like, "Yeah." <laughs> I think I'll watch that on my own. <laughs> all right, tell us a secret. Ooh. Do you know, my goddaughter just asked me what the naughtiest thing I ever did was. And I felt like <laughs> Theresa May, you know, when she's like, oh, I walked through wheat fields. Yeah. Um, God, have got a secret? I don't have any secrets. But well, depending on when you broadcast this, I'm going to go to Kew Gardens with my sister on Wednesday. And that is not strictly, I think, within the current legal limits. So that is a bit of a secret. That is a perfect secret. And we won't tell anyone. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> next what do you want and you can't say world peace <laughs> do you know what, at the moment chocolate i feel Great. like a real cliche but do you know what it's horrible january we're stuck indoors and normally christmas finishes so you think right i'm gonna stop eating the chocolate i have no desire not to so i keep getting all those really cheap chocolate coins i can't not eat chocolate money <laughs> i don't know it's a childhood thing and it's such terrible chocolate but once i've opened a bag and so, yeah, chocolate, I think. Excellent. What do you need? I oh, know it's the same answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think, oh, what do I need at the moment? Uh, I need to see my friends. Yeah, I hear that. And I really, really want to be able to hug my godkids. Oh, trust me. Milkshakes, vanilla or banana? Vanilla. Okay. Was that a hard decision for you? You paused. Uh, well, I'm, I eat anything and everything, so I'd <laughs> be happy with that. <laughs> Excellent. Comedy or love? Comedy. Excellent. iPhone or Android? Uh, but you know, I'm funny. I'm on a Mac, but I have an Android phone, as I, I try not to be too loyal to any one thing. So I'm going to say yeah. phone. Don't monopolise me, you bastards. <laughs> yeah, see, people think that I am pro-Apple because I've got a lot of Apple devices. I want the what the device that is best for me in the moment. And at the moment, that's just the Apple devices. I like being in the ecosystem. But I also went and got a BlackBerry Passport um, before. I, I have, I like tech. It's not that I like My phone so, contract is uh, £10 a month. Yeah. And it wouldn't be if I had an iPhone. I remember going to sign up to my local gym to try and be a bit more. They were having an offer. And of course, once you do the two week offer, they kept trying to sell it to me and sell it to me. And I think he was used to all these company execs coming in because he was like, well, 
I mean, you know, how much do you spend a month on your phone? And I was like, 10 pounds. And he just looked at me as if to say, you're from another planet. I was like, I am a middle-aged lady with no income. I've got a shit phone with a crack, crack screen. <laughs> you know, I don't yeah. really care enough, so. Absolutely. Okay, favorite food? Ooh, ice cream. Okay, nice. What flavor? Any, I can't even have it in the house. <laughs> oh wow okay i'm really i really love sugar i have a terrible sugar addiction but okay. less like fat so like my mum loves cream without the sugar in it but i need oh, that okay. i need that hit of sugar so to me cold ice cream is just like crack amazing favorite color blue and two more questions mm. your worst days consist of Ooh, probably when i'm feeling very anxious and you're at the bottom of that mental health ladder. Yeah. And that can and your, be honest. Yeah. And your best days consist of? Well, not having that. So I think at the moment, like, I just love walking. And if I can go on a 10-mile walk and come home and have not had any moments of feeling whatever, I feel lighter than air. I just love it. Amazing. Thank you so much for doing my quick fire round. I enjoyed listening yeah. to those answers. I really um, want some chocolate ice cream now. <laughs> I'm sorry and yeah. kind of not sorry as well. Like, have your chocolate ice cream. We're eight days into 2021. You can do what you want. That's what yeah. I say. Problem is, you just have to go to a shop and risk your life for it. So you're like, <laughs> why risk my life in this blooming chocolate ice cream? <laughs> the, so there are two more things I want to do before we kind of wrap up this podcast. And one is called this sentence. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read a bunch of sentences to you. One, two, three, four, five, six. There are six sentences. And all I want you to do is either start them or end them. I'll explain uh, what you have to do for each one as we go. In fact, the first five, okay are finished this sentence and the last one is what is the beginning of the sentence right so the first sentence says i am best at oh that's a difficult one i am best at Ooh. uh i'm quite good at singing i'm best Ooh. at singing that's on good on my own <laughs> I'm not a performer, but I love singing. Oh, that's a nice, nice random fact. I love that. Thank yeah. you. Next next sentence. I don't like. God, it's cliche, but right now, Donald Trump. <laughs> oh, Boris Johnson. Do you know what? More Boris Johnson. Let's be honest. My grandma calls, my grandma calls them, between them, she calls them Boris Trump. So that's just how I describe <laughs> them now. Boris Trump, yeah. yeah. Borricking, bollocking Boris. Yeah. <laughs> My anger for that man knows no bounds. Uh, the next one. I don't think I could accomplish. No, sorry. I didn't Ooh. think I could accomplish. Oh, God, nothing at the moment. Uh, I didn't think I could accomplish. I don't know, maybe getting through my chemo. Mm. You know, we're still standing. Yep. <laughs> Soon. I will. Gosh. I was going to say leave the house, but that's not even true, is it? Uh, soon. Oh. It's so hard to predict anything at the moment, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, okay. Soon I will cook something, as I am doing all the cooking in the house these days, because that's what I like to do. So three times a day, I'm cooking a meal. 
So definitely soon I am going to be cooking something. Excellent. Two more. In my life, I have learned that. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, in my life, I have learned that uh, often there's something worse around the corner, oh, but things do get better in the end. Thank you so much. And this last one, you're going to begin the sentence with me. So I'm going to tell you what the end is. Yeah. So something will be better tomorrow than it is today. Well, <laughs> uh, these are all really hard during a lockdown, aren't they? <laughs> something will be better. Hmm. Oh, I can't think of anything that will be better tomorrow. Uh, the weather. Okay. The weather will be better tomorrow than it is today. It's terrible. I just put a caveat on that. I think because of the lockdown at the moment, my mental state is trying to be quite um, just in the now. Yeah. Because I, like, I've stopped checking the numbers of people dying and things like that because I think we're at the point now where it's not helpful. Yeah. And it's quite frightening. So it's like, let's just take this a day at a time. A hundred percent. I so subscribe to that. You know, I could try and tell you what's going to happen in two weeks, but I, do you know what? I think it's a good idea not to. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the final section of this podcast is called Letter to Yourself. I ask everybody to do this. And so these are the instructions. They're simple. You're writing a letter to either your future or your past self. What does it say? All you have to do is start your letter, dear Amanda. And I'm not going to say anything at all because I want you to have the freedom to, to write your letter out loud <laughs> <laughs> um well do you know what? i've done this or we, we did have to do this when i was having some counseling straight after my treatment and i did have to send myself a little card and then they posted it to you uh, yeah. a few months later i should try and find it now um okay so dear amanda um probably at the moment you can't see that things are getting better because it's in very small steps. But hopefully, when you look back, you will realise that things were getting a bit better. Um, I would hope that you realise that you are stronger than you feel every day, and that maybe you're feeling a little less anxious and a bit more positive about things. Um, and I would also hope that you are now able to see your friends and have lots of hugs and uh, get to hold your godchildren again. And have a cuddle with them because there's nothing that beats being hugged by a little warm child and um you know spending time with my friends kids was always so uplifting and it just takes you out of yourself and i think i really miss that interaction with children so hopefully in a while i'll be back in the position where i can do that again um and i think yeah just stop being so hard on yourself really it's tough what you've been through and it's tough rebuilding a career from zero when there's no guarantee that, you know, in the next few years you won't get some more bad news about your health. Uh, and I guess I would try and tell myself to have maybe a bit more faith in, you know, some of those outcomes are positive and to have a little bit more confidence in yourself. Amazing. Thank you so, so much. I, did yeah. about you. I find it impossible to envisage the future at the moment. I'm just like, don't even try. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. It makes sense. And I think a lot of people are thinking that. Um, well, one thing I predicted 
I think partly because you're shielding yourself emotionally, aren't you? And you'll be like, oh, they yeah. definitely would lock us down again. You know, the government are too Tory, they're too business oriented. And then you're like in your third lockdown going, oh, that's not what I thought they would do. <laughs> I think there's a level of insanity to what's going on. I mean, again, sorry, this is me being a bit political, but what I don't understand is why everything is so last minute because surely it's just more exhausting to deal with it once it's terrible. You know, like with the schools, they gave everybody one day's notice. Yeah. And if you'd have just done it two weeks ago, isn't it easier? Isn't it easier when the numbers are lower? And so I find it really odd that, you know, I see these people as quite corrupt who are leading us at the moment. But surely if they save the economy, then there's more money that they can nick. <laughs> yeah. So even yeah. trying to put my head in that's quite quite sort of business, um, I don't think particularly moral way of thinking. I just don't get why there's this level of, of incompetence around it. Just surely if you just did this better, it would all go away quicker, you know. I understand yeah. that it's complicated, but leaving decisions to the last minute when it's a virus. You know, it's it's not like an economic collapse. It's a you can't tell the virus what to do, and yeah. I just don't get. So I find it very hard to kind of envisage what on earth people think. The fact that people are still like this government's still popular, despite the fact that we're very much heading to a hundred thousand people dying. And I, I don't want to just bury my head in the sand, but sometimes that maybe is just the only way to cope at the moment. Yeah. Absolutely. I would not be a fortune teller for love nor money at the moment. <laughs> no. And we all there is some responsibility we all have to take in safeguarding ourselves yeah. from, from the news because it's just no matter which country you're looking at or where you're consuming that news from, it's just so debilitating. So yeah, yeah. that's so true, isn't it? I keep being told off because I keep reading the Daily Mail. No. <laughs> <laughs> like, I need to know where all this madness is coming from. And then I, I just feel sick to my stomach and I'm like, why did you do that? Go and eat some chocolate. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So do you have any shout outs? Oh, well, everybody I know, really, I really miss you. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I, I sort of, I love to sort of having a single life and being able to get on the train and go. I miss galleries so much. I found funny enough with my anxiety, I, I was very lucky for a while. I lived in King's Cross for like 10 years and I could just walk everywhere. And I I miss London, like, oh, makes my heart bleed. I know that UCH, which saved my life, you know, that hospital saved my life. They are now, I think, a COVID only hospital and the staff there were amazing. And again, apologies for being political, but I one of the reasons Brexit broke my heart was that the nurses that saved my life were Spanish. They were Greek, my oncologist is Greek, you know, and. Yeah. I would just give those people all of my anything I had just to say thank you. And as a country, I don't think we're particularly being kind or thankful to these amazing people. Um, and so I guess my shout out really is to that life of, you know, London exhibitions where I used to, be able to just wander around and come out of myself enough to stop feeling anxious and learn something at the same time and see people. And I love the bustle of the city. I loved walking in the streets of London and it, you know, it just breaks my heart to know what's happening to that amazing city so yeah maybe London's my shout out amazing and finally where can people find you if you want them to (laughs) no at the moment they can't I have really really hunkered down I mean you know I'm on Facebook and my surname is pretty um distinctive um but I'm, I'm not really on social media one of my things I thought I could do would be you know get into it a bit more but um 
this has been a year, I think, of hunkering down. And I guess 2021 should be a year of, of trying to get out there a bit. Because I think with the crick and meeting you and I was trying to sort of, you know, expand my horizons in new directions, meet new people. And I was actually on, uh, I was being interviewed to be on another similar committee. And of course, it's all just, it's gone. You know, you can't yeah. invite, invite cancer survivors to come and meet each other over a cup of tea because, you know, yeah. they'll all have the COVID. Um, and I, yeah, so um, I'm sort of nowhere at the moment. Um, maybe in 2021, I'll get my finger out and do something about that. Thank you so much for joining me on Honest Participants Only. It's been amazing. And I look forward to seeing if your predictions come true for the next five years. Not that there were any definitive ones, but yeah, yeah. thank you. Oh, so much. I think my prediction is just don't make any predictions anymore. Don't yeah. even try. A hundred percent. Thanks for being here. Bye. It's a pleasure. I hope it wasn't too boring. Never. <laughs>